Welcome to the Fiction Holics, where two thriller authors reverse engineer thrillers from current events, review movies they like, and play the conspiracy game, a game show about oddball conspiracies and why North Dakota doesn't exist. Your first host is TJ McKay. He's the author of the financial thriller Lucky Links, which is now available on Amazon. He'll show you who really runs the world, and it ain't pretty. Your second host is Michael Angel. He's the author of the Plague Walker Medical Series, which is also available on Amazon. When it comes to microscopic bugs that can kill you, he's your man. We're going to start off with the first segment of our show, where two authors reverse engineer thrillers from current events. Michael, what's going on with uh, diamonds? I mean, you know, I've always been looking to upgrade my wife's diamond from when I proposed to her almost 15 years ago at this point. I mean, okay. are, am I reading that I might actually get a deal here? You What's, might get uh, a deal here. There yeah. was a diamond mine where they found a record-breaking yeah. diamond, and they found a second one just a few weeks later. Now, with these two major mega diamonds that have been found, this could potentially have an impact on the price of diamonds worldwide. Now, I've always found the diamond trade kind of interesting because diamonds are actually relatively, relatively speaking, common in nature. And as you know, that this is a market that's very tightly controlled by certain conglomerates, and they limit the number of gem-grade diamonds that come out. And that's because they're very price-sensitive. They want to keep the price up at a certain level. So how could we turn this into a thriller where we have a mine where we mysteriously find two large diamonds at the same time potentially impact the world market? Where could we go with this? Yeah, so I think that you could take essentially the plot line of Wag the Dog, which was a great screenplay yes, and film with Robert De Niro, Dustin Hoffman back in the late 90s. We're going to date ourselves at this rate. Yeah, I know. God. Um, my hair will be fully gray and white by the end of this podcast. Um, so my, my, my hair was gray and white starting the podcast. Well, there you go. It looks like I'll be doing this podcast solo next episode. You know, essentially... D- wag the dog and you take that same parallel plot line conspiracy to create a fake war it doesn't actually exist get the entire American public behind it show unity it's kind of like the rich are conspiring to create a false sense of value and a false sense of scarcity when the reality is they've been sitting on this excess of diamonds under earth this entire time Guess what happens? We have an Indiana Jones type of protagonist okay. that, you know, goes to Alexandria and goes in the basements and gets his whip out and basically finds different clues over time. And, you know, he, you know, through fun and games and, you know, finds out the catalyst is something's going on here. The fun and games. He's in suddenly this tunnel full of cobras and snakes. It's hot outside. And the next thing you know, bad guy's closing in, he finds something out, and he sees the diamond mind. What happens next? I say he maybe grabs one of those diamonds, because, you know, you got to save a couple of those. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. And he has to end up taking them, charging down one of the hallways, dodging the snakes, dodging the spiders, dodging a huge rolling boulder. But at the end of the tunnel, which he just escapes, there's the evil diamond conglomerate agents, the big guys, the heavy hitters. They take one and they say, there is nothing you can find that I can't take from you. Yes, I know. It's very similar to another movie, which franchise, which you can't mention right now. But, you know, that would be kind of cool. That would be one possibility. Now, another possibility is that Indiana Jones continues to go down the yellow brick road 
and believe and sees these vicious looking monsters or vicious looking characters that he believes are behind this global international conspiracy and going through the tea leaves and then eventually toward the end once he gets past all is lost dark night of the soul he suddenly finds out that wait it's actually a guy named steve in brooklyn who's behind this whole thing you gotta watch out for those steves so he gets on so he gets on a cheap united flight he misses flying you know ryanair where it costs tax to fly through europe and you know he eats his you know fake biscuit and his you know two dollar uh you know cardboard lasagna going across the atlantic but while he's going across atlantic we have to have that little red line in the dot so we could follow him that yes that's traditional for these kinds of films it it is and of course you have that you know symphonic music as he's going through the clouds and as soon as he lands he goes and he visits steve in brooklyn and he realizes that it was actually an international conspiracy planned by steve the entire time just so he could deflate the price of diamonds so he can pay his you know girlfriend on a garbage man's salary sorry garbage man sorry janitors uh, you know, $15 for however many carat ring. I love it. I love it. Yeah. I tell you, I tell you, you're onto something here. You're onto something. Third possibility, uh, not as enticing, would essentially be that we have an Aquaman type character. Basically, instead of. Are we discovering... talking the 70s Super Friends Aquaman that's wimpy? Or are we talking like the 2010 or, uh, version of the Marvel version where he's kind of kick ass and Jason Momoa like? That's important to the story. Yeah, it is. So, how about this? Let's just take the 70s version mixed with the Sherlock Holmes. So, picture, you know, a guy with a magnifying glass and, you know, gills and a tail. And a water scooter. And a water scooter. And then he basically finds out underwater, instead of the kingdom of Atlantis, it's the kingdom of uh, Diamantis and finds all these diamonds. I think that's great. I think that's... How would you how would you spin it? I would probably spin it that way. I like the way you're going with it because we're taking more of a Marvel approach to this. Yeah. Given a bit of a supernatural approach. He's down in Diamantis and finds out that diamonds are actually, you know, the way that they power that civilization. And the reason that diamonds are scarcer or the reason they've been controlling it is because they're trying to send them diamonds down here to keep their underwater civilization going mm. and power something like a shield that prevents them from being found by sonar or anything like that. And then he's going to have to make a decision. Does he return with the truth to the world? Or does he fall in love and seduce the incredibly hot young daughter of the person who runs Diamond Lantis and decide to stay with her or keep the truth hidden? Yeah, and by the way, speaking of incredibly hot young daughters, the one thing I would say going back to Tenet, I know we're kind of going back off track here, <laughs> um, is one thing that was lacking in my James Bond analogy, the Double Seven analogy, was there was no Bond girl. Now, you know, there was the blonde woman who was the, who was the, you know, estranged wife of the antagonist, but... And she was sort of a love interest. Yeah, love interest, but I would not call a Bond woman. So maybe here in Diamantis, the pursuit of Diamantis, the discovery of the kingdom of Diamantis, or, you know, or, you know, Stevie in Brooklyn's ultimate betrayal to buy his wife a, you know, diamond ring, maybe his wife will be a Bond girl. I like that idea. And by the way, in future episodes, stay tuned. Uh, in one of these future episodes, uh, you know, once I have maybe another shot or two in me, we will be going over the potential Bond ladies of future films. All right. The next segment of the show, we're going to talk about a thriller movie or a book that these guys liked. 
Or maybe one of them liked it, one of them hated it. Maybe they both hated it. Or even both hated liking it. You, you never know. But you get the idea. Take it away, guys. All right. Continuing on, my esteemed colleague here, TJ McKay, recently went to the movies and saw two films, one that he liked and one he did not so much. So let's start with one you did like. This was, which, which film was this? Which thriller was this? This was a film called The Courier, mm-hmm. starring a one Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh, Benedict Cabbage Patch. Yeah, that is correct. And this film was done by, I always want to give props where I can. Dominic Cook did this. Yeah, Dominic Cook, and it was produced by Adam Ackland. So essentially, this was a film about a British businessman in the early 60s who was recruited by the CIA and MI6 to secretly uh, carry state secrets uh, between uh, Britain and the Soviet Union. And he had an informant that he became, uh, that he formed a deep friendship with over a course of several years. And these secrets wound up being the key crown jewels of intelligence that wound up taking down the Soviet Union. And what did you like about it? What made you say, oh yeah, I want to see this again? Yeah, so what I liked about it was, uh, one, the stakes were extremely high at all times. You always knew, you felt very invested into the ultimate cause, the mission, the characters, because you knew what was at stake, obviously, the fact that it being during the Cold War and being the intended target to take down the Soviet Union. Number two was the fact, was was the patience that the film crew displayed by really taking the time to developing the characters to become uh, sympathetic, become relatable, to understanding their motivations, their will, their their stories, and what genuinely drove their willpower. And this kind of ties into the issue that Michael Angel had with Tenet, where the protagonist, we had no knowledge of him. We did not have any idea what drove him, what motivated him, what what he feared, why he did what he did. And this is such a critical aspect of writing thrillers in particular. Why are you rooting for the protagonist at all, or any character? And it was very evident in this film the way it was done. And, you know, also uh, what I loved about this film was it was done in a way where by the time you got to the second and the second act and the latter part of the second act, it suddenly switched to that third act when it went to bad guys closing in, uh, all is lost. You didn't even really care that much because you were enjoying the film. The fun and games aspect of the film, you were genuinely enjoying the back and forth, the scenes. It was almost like you were genuinely enjoying the journey without getting to the mission. If I can interrupt for a second, yeah. what Tom is referring to that that a lot of thriller writers like to refer to for the audience that may not know about this. We're referring to beats, that is, parts of a script, of a screenplay, that are taken from a very, very good book called Save the Cat by a gentleman named Blake Snyder, who really breaks down how thriller fiction really works. And you could argue any fiction works, but it does apply particularly well in this genre, where in order to get the audience on the protagonist's side, there is usually a save the cat moment. That is, no matter how small it is, they're actually doing something to get the audience to like them or to root for them in some small way. The fun and games portion is what you may have come to the movie for. If the poster promised a 
chase around Saturn and car chases in LA. That's what you're going to get. This yeah. is the part of the movie you get that. And the bad guys close in is where typically where the, the hero starts running into problems from the antagonists. So that being said, let, let me ask you this. Do you know what did they do to save the cat with the protagonist in this? Early on, did he do anything that showed you, this is a good guy, I'm on his side? I mean, he was a salesman for an industrial boiler company. Okay. And he did it to support his wife and his children. And you saw this. And I saw this, and it and it basically showed that he had done everything possible to you know support his wife mm-hmm. and his child and he had many opportunities he was a very faithful man he had many opportunities to be unfaithful he was not he rejected those uh, temptations he also um, had the opportunity to leave his wife on many occasions because she had some psychological issues and said he was very supportive of her and he also spent extra money that he could have used recreational pursuits like golfing he put that money toward uh, his kids schooling for, for special needs. So you can immediately see that this is a genuinely good good person that puts his family and other people. Good spouse, uh, good father, himself. cares about his family. Yeah. I enjoyed the film so much that by the time you knew you had arrived at that final act, it was almost like, oh, well, this is interesting. And yeah, the movie's probably going to end in the next 20 to 30 minutes. And I'm going to miss it. Yeah. Because it was just done so well. The camaraderie that the gentleman built, the British businessman played by Cumberbatch and the, uh, the, his Soviet counterpart was so wonderful how the families got together. They got to know each other's families, kids, hobbies. And they realized that they were two men from two different worlds, two different cultures, but they really had a lot more in common on a human level. Um, and with the backdrop of the Cold War, these huge stakes weighing over them, it made this particularly interesting. Now, that sounds excellent. Now, what was the film that was... A th- We're going to stretch the boundaries of a thriller here right now to include a superhero-type film in it, because at least this one does not include somebody who can shoot laser beams from the eyes or anything like that. They're just really, really, really good, supernaturally good at their job. And that was Black Widow. And you were saying that was just passable, if that. If that. If that. So yeah. would you rank this in the lower third or lower tier of the Marvel movies overall? That's a really good question because here's the way that I view the Marvel movies of late. I think it's sent, what was it now? 2021? Yeah. I would say it's since probably, I don't know, maybe 2016. Image of Marvel films essentially pictured the Mona Lisa sitting in the Louvre in Paris. Since 2016, it's just like seagull after seagull flying over, taking a dump where they just so just basically like, after the Avengers, it all went downhill for you. Basically chipping away little by little, little at the canvas where you can hardly see Miss Mona Lisa anymore. It's just all bird excrement. So that that's, that's that that's one hell of an image. I'll give you credit uh, for that. You you want to be a writer? Well, yeah, and, and and so I really cannot classify with good conscience Black Widow in the bottom third because, frankly, I mean, what company does it even have in the top half? Okay, I'll you go know? with that. I'll I mean, I, that. I mean, honestly, I you know, I enjoyed Black Panther. I thought that was a very well done film. I enjoyed the very first Thor, the first two Thors. Uh, I enjoyed the first Iron Man. I enjoyed the first two Captain Americas. I enjoyed some of the Avengers. But to be honest with you, most of it is just simple studio-based excess propaganda filler movies. That's essentially what Black Widow was. And this was a very late piece of filler, too, because, I mean, 
I would imagine part of the reason it's hard to get involved with this is because the character's dead. I mean, she's she's she died. We already know she's going to survive long enough to then die at the end of 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 the last pair of movies. Yeah, and you know, I saw in the general consensus that that was the main gripe against the film. But to be honest with you, that's kind of like saying. You know, oh, God, the truck driver that drove his car off of a cliff, you know, fell 6,000 feet, blew up the truck, uh, happened to get shot by a bullet on the way down. It's kind of like, okay, well, the bullet, you know, it might have done something, but I think there were a few other issues there, you know. Um, look, yeah, there's a few other issues yeah. on the way down. Yeah. yeah, so a few other issues. I mean, you know, number one, you know, again did not follow the arc of the hero, which is, you know, forming, you know, essentially one, an orphan tale, mm-hmm. uh, two, having a relatable, sympathetic aspect to the character that puts them against all odds to succeed, and then showing through will and grit their abilities to succeed. That was not the case. Now, they did better than, let's say, Captain Marvel, where yeah. that character was almost near perfect. So... Maybe a little bit better than that, but essentially Black Widow was never really losing the entire film. Really? So she it never was a got, little bit too easy the whole way through. She, she never genuinely lost a fight. She never genuinely almost, you know, lost anything. She was searching the entire time. The entire film essentially centers the, the plot, you know, you know uh, centers around her family, which is not her biological family. There are three other Soviet agents that she served in a in a covert clandestine family for the sake of the Soviet Republic in the United States. If you've seen the, the famous FX show, The Americans, it's circa that. By the way, The Americans, great show on FX. I'd love to talk about that in future podcast episodes. Make a note of but, it. Yep. It's, but it's not very well executed because the entire part of the second act is all about the bickering, soap opera-like relationship of this family and essentially goes nowhere. And by the way, if you're a Stranger Things fan, the sheriff from Stranger Things happens to play the father who has a thick, phony Russian accent that he does not pull off well, uh, and it comes across worse than comical. And by the way, the main villain, there's no stakes. We don't know anything about this person. Uh, we don't know about their origin. We don't know about their relation. It's just, ugh. Okay, minor spoiler alert here, but let me tell you what I would enjoy about watching this film is the fact that David Harbour, the guy who played in Stranger Things, and he's the Soviet character. Who I just mentioned, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. that whole thing. Well, spoiler alert, folks, but at the end of the last season so far of Stranger Things, we find out that David Harbour is alive, but somewhere in a prison in Russia. So maybe they brainwashed him from the Stranger Things area, and they brought him out, and he became the father here, father figure for Natasha Romanoff. You know what's actually interesting? If Black Widow basically just ended about halfway through the film, let's say halfway through Act 2, they genuinely made a sequence transition into being a Stranger Things uh, story. And next thing you know, you had Eleven and Dustin and the whole gang come out. I would have, I mean, I, like, I my... Wow, that'd been awesome. My grade D would suddenly be, uh, would go to C with, yes. with higher consideration. Absolutely. I agree 100%. Yeah. That is interesting. Yeah. I like that idea. I would see that film. I'd pay full price for that film. I would. And, you know, if we can somehow get to, you know, what's the villain's name? The, the Upside Down? The Upside Down. Yeah, the upside down would have been a way better villain. I agree, hundred percent, a hundred percent on that. This schmuck in Black Widow. <laughs> yeah. 
I totally agree on that. And yeah. uh, I hope things, things turn a little better. Hey, question, by the way. This might be a spoiler warning, folks, so just be aware. But my understanding is there's a character called the Taskmaster in that movie, correct? Mm-hmm. And the Taskmaster has this big, heavy mask on, at least in the trailers, correct? Mm-hmm. So here's the spoiler, folks. Turn out now so you don't hear it. I have not seen the film, but based on two other films I've seen from Disney in the recent past, if that person has a disguised voice and is hiding behind a mask, they will be revealed to be a woman, a young woman with long flowing hair. Am I right? I am right. Yes. Because they've done it twice now. Yeah. We have a kind of a badass looking villain who on the reveal has to pull off the mask and they've usually a woman, very young looking woman with flowing hair hidden somehow underneath the mask. So they went back to the well a third time? They went back a third time. Because if I'm starting to expect it, then the audience is going to start expecting it. Yeah, and you know, let me also mention that the movie is about, it's really not even that much about the central Scarlett Johansson Black Widow character as much as it's about the entire family. The sister takes takes a... predominant role in the film as well but it's really just kind of an expectations gap okay and it's really a shame because the first 20 minutes of, of of the film i did particularly enjoy especially the soundtrack with the emo cover version of nirvana smells like teen spirit that the was original done. is an emo version well this is like emo emo not alternative 90s emo but we're uh, dating ourselves again by the way we are young whippersnappers hey You still listening? That's good. Because now you're in for a treat. Because next up is The Conspiracy Game. I'm your host, James Manganiello. I'll be awarding the value of their statements on a scale of 1 to 5 Rothschilds. Whoever has the most points at the end of the evening gets bragging rights and a warm case of Schlitz. Gentlemen, inhale those jet chemtrails and get out your flat earth maps because it's conspiracy time. Fondue. Now let me ask you something. This is not a dish that's naturally going to come out of the ether that people are going to like. Look, I like melted cheese. You like melted cheese. Everybody likes melted cheese. But not enough to like dip everything from like a, sh- a shrimp on a, on a stick to your own shoe in it and eat it. Who came up with this idea? Now, I have a theory about this. That fondue was created to alleviate a global surplus of dairy products. The Swiss will probably have like huge, vast stores of Emmentalier and other cheese. They had to figure out what to do with it before it went bad. And they figured, we'll get the rest of the world to melt it down and dip food in it. Think about it. It's the perfect inversion. Instead of putting cheese on something, like a cheeseburger, which only uses, say, a single slice. No, let's have them melt a whole tank of cheese and they have to put something into the tank. That's not bad. I like this reasoning. I'll give you four Rothschilds. I like that. In my mind, this is one thing and one thing only. This is all framing, marketing. Have you ever noticed, right? It's kind of like if you were to go to your average person and say, hey, do you want to eat fish eggs? They would be repulsed. Right. Hey, you want to go eat caviar? I'd be like, that's not food. That's food to catch other food. Yes. Hey, you want to eat caviar, right? Okay. Now, I don't know about you. I'm the kind of guy, I've gotten caught more than a few times, you know, at a, you know, business dinner, lunch, 
when I, I was the schmuck that accidentally ordered wings and then I realized suddenly that I'm sitting there wearing a suit and there's like nine <laughs> professionals around me and I have gook and guck all over my fingers and I'm like, oh God, why? Probably not exactly the best meal to be ordering friggin' wings, you know? So how many of, I mean, what is the number one most loved snack in America? And it's not even close. Snack, I mean, of course, it's nachos. Chips con queso, right? There's cheese in there. Okay. Now, if you were to basically say, hey, honey, let's make a steak and let's dip that into the queso, she'd probably be repulsed and think, you've got to watch your cholesterol. This is absolutely freaking disgusting. Yeah, I would do that. Who, yeah. who are you? You want to take your burger and, and dip it into freaking nacho, into, into nacho cheese? Right, it's one thing to are pour the nuts? cheese on. It's nothing to yeah. put the burger into the cheese. Yeah. Yeah, okay, you know, you're sitting there at some sporting event, you see the, you know, $9, you know, fake nacho cheese with the, with the $14 domestic beer, and, you know, you're sitting there looking at these people in absolute friggin' disgust. It's the reason why you try to avoid the restroom in these games, okay? But for the same reason... <laughs> you know, I can't argue but, with that. I can't argue. But for, this, but for some reason, the same damn experience reframed with a cool sounding name fondue and an actual establishment is not only socially acceptable it is lauded it is propagated as as oh we're going to fondue tonight and people are having parties over it <laughs> i mean it's and it just goes to show you fellow writers out there and aspiring creators it is not about what you do, it is about how you do it and how you brand it. That is so ridiculous. I could see Netflix making a movie about that. I'm giving you two Rothschilds. So you're saying that this would basically be an exercise in social control, right? Let's see if we can yeah. take an activity that normally would, would people would look at you weird and go, I'm not coming to your barbecues anymore, Frank. Yeah. To all of a sudden, oh wow, how classy this is that we get to submerge our food in molten cheese. Yes. It is total social control. So I mean, already in this episode, we talk about population control. We talk about social control. I mean, a lot of different types of control are taking place here. Yeah, but Mr. you know, you know what? Angel. In this, this day and age, they're all equally plausible. That's the problem here. All right, we got one more, one more to throw. You got to throw at me here to even it out. Go ahead, Tom. Hit me with your best shot for the, for this episode. My best shot is I'm a proud veteran of the Starbucks barista family. I was a barista for about three years on and off uh, high school and uh, and uh, college. Uh, some of the whippet shots that I did in my breaks uh, probably killed some of my brain cells and got me in trouble <laughs> and bore on fire almost a few times. That explains uh, why you're so almost immune to the effects of coffee, I think. I think so. It also uh, would uh, probably take away my uh, sensitivities in considering the pros and cons of taking up a hobby and passion like writing anyway um not saying that all writers uh inject nitrogen through whipped cream bottles but uh some of them do anyway uh it okay. would explain it would explain the 50 shades of gray series <laughs> Ugh. here's your c and three rothschilds <laughs> hey you know what and, hey you know that you know that case i picked the wrong day oh. to stop huffing nitrogen oh you know what I will I will inhale all day there, Mr. Michael, because uh, if I could be uh, you know writing a character like Christian Grey and uh, selling tens of millions of copies, then let's do it. So the last one is the controversy over Starbucks baristas mispronouncing your name. So 
In case those of you who are not familiar, you go to Starbucks, you order your drink, they tell you to go to the bar, they write your name on the cup so they can call to you when your order is ready, and what's happening is that they're mispronouncing your name. It's true. You know, in my and case, my name is Michael. That's yeah. pretty easy. I get back, they call it Mikael or something like that. I mean, how hard is this? I think they, they've been listening to the podcast about all of our Russian conspiracy theories. So what's the conspiracy theory here? Here? Well, I was going to ask you, because I think this one is right up your alley, sir. Well, let me tell you what I think. I, I, I was talking about somebody about this the other day, because, again, my name's Michael. It's not hard, people. Mikhail, maybe it's just bad penmanship, but I have a theory about this. If you think about it, yeah. they get people's names wrong much more than they should on average. They should at least have a 50-50 chance, heads or tails, pronouncing the name Tom right or the name Paul right or something, right? And they don't. It'll come out Paolo or something like that. I think this is a PR strategy. Think about it. Most people who go to Starbucks, they're urbanized. They got a cell phone. They have access to social media. What's the first thing you're going to do when your name gets mispronounced? You're going to go on social media and talk about it. Hey, it was at the Starbucks and they mispronounced their name. It's free advertising. That's what they're yep. doing. It's free advertising. Yep. Oh my God. You just blew my mind. Oh, please take all five Rothschilds for that one. No, I couldn't agree more. And I think the lesson to take about this from a creative writing standpoint is don't be afraid to do something wrong, to go against the grain, to go against the norm, go against the system, go against the status quo, and see what happens. Because that's what starts the conversation half the time. Yep, conversations you know? like this. Exactly. I mean, you know, when you wake up in the morning and you say, you know what, I want to be more like those guys that talk about, you know, how the population is being controlled with illegal devices underwater. Or the synthetic butter they put on popcorn. That is exactly what I want to get up and learn about. I want to hear about people that do not ever, under any circumstances, want to have their work be featured as an Amazon Prime original series. Absolutely not. Because they understand how hideous and how disturbing it would be to see their series featured in an ad uh, right next to your subscription peanut butter. Absolutely. I would personally be very disturbed. They, they understand that, you know, a check from the largest streaming company in the entire world and in all of existence and multi-dominant media player uh, would be absolutely horrible. Because, you know, being on the absolute biggest platform would just basically be a validation of... Well, be a validation of all sorts of con corporate conspiracy theories. A quick check of our sticky notes. It looks like Michael Angel brought in the most Rothschilds tonight. Congratulations, Michael. You win a warm case of Schlitz, flown in fresh from our warehouse in beautiful downtown Milwaukee. And that leads us to the conclusion of this episode. And most importantly, we are telling you to never, ever, ever contact Amazon or Netflix or any advertiser to do business with us because that would be the worst thing in the world. Absolutely. Hey, thanks for joining us tonight and have a great rest of the evening. Till next time, friends. That's all for tonight. And thanks for listening to The Fiction Hollocks. T.J. McKay is the author of the financial thriller Lucky Links, which is now available on Amazon. Michael Angel is the author of the Plague Walker medical thriller series, which is also available on Amazon. This most excellent narration was done by me, James Manganiello. And you can find more of my voiceover work at irefusetoquit.podomatic.com. Oh, 
And if you have a question and you've always wondered about something or not quite tame conspiracy theory that you'd like us to discuss, please drop us a line at thefictionholics at gmail.com.